from WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. As our economy, both on the national and local level, grapples with high inflation, record energy prices, and continuing issues with the supply chain, I've been thinking a lot lately about what steps we need to be taking to shore up our economic policies and strengthen our workforce to make sure our communities are best equipped to deal with such volatility these days. Maybe this has been on your mind lately, too. Well, across so much of the economics literature these days, there seems to be a lot of evidence that there is one particular policy area that has the real potential to expand our workforce and create an incredible amount of economic value for our communities. That area, of course, is childcare. And how much economic value could better childcare policy create? Well, the U.S. Council of Economic Advisors found in 2015 that for every $1 spent on early childhood learning initiatives, $8.60 of value is created for society. There are vanishingly few other policy investments that have anywhere close to that level of payoff. And it's in part because investing in childcare creates value on multiple levels. First, it brings more parents, and particularly women, into the workforce, providing an immediate income boost to low- and middle-income communities. And equally as important, improved access to childcare has major long-term economic benefits as well. For kids, it provides an income boost of up to almost 4% when they grow up and join the workforce. And for parents, especially moms, that extra time that they are able to work as a result of bringing their kids to daycare also boosts their income throughout their careers, even after their kids grow up. How? Well, one of the major contributors to the wage gap between men and women, and of course it's not the only one, but it is a big one, is that many women have historically exited the workforce for a significant period of time after they gave birth in order to care for their young children, while men have tended to keep working throughout that same period of time. And in the long run, that gives men relatively more experience in their given professions, which equates with higher wages. So by the time children are in school full-time and many women come back into the workforce, they are often years behind their male counterparts. And of course, there are other forms of sexism that play into the wage gap as well, and in powerful and deeply unequitable ways. But even with that said, expanded access to affordable and high-quality childcare is one of the most impactful methods of strengthening our economy and our communities, and that's not even to mention the positive effects it can have on childhood educational performance and attainment as well. Now, as someone who does not yet have kids myself, 
I am admittedly not deeply knowledgeable about our local childcare system. So I recently sat down with Donna Willey, the executive director of the Sullivan County Child Care Council, to get a better sense of what the child care situation looks like locally and what sorts of issues the system is facing. Our agency pretty much answers everything child care, helps direct parents to where they can find child care, how they can pay for child care, what's safe, what's not safe. We train providers. We help parents figure out how to pay for childcare, and we also help programs open up and provide them training that they're required to have. Sullivan County in particular has, we lost like four or five programs, and we find that most of the parents that call us are really looking for in-home childcare programs. They're more intimate and more family-friendly than centers and also less expensive if it's an in-home childcare program. Hmm. So, and our agency actually helps the in-home childcare programs open and follow the regulations, we can help centers also, but they're really directed to the regional office for the state. Can you give me a sense of how in-home childcare differs from having a childcare center? Sure. So an in-home family childcare, there's two different in-home modalities they're called. One is family childcare, which is really one person in their home um, caring for up to eight children, depending on their ages, usually six, or a group family, which is two adults in, in their home caring for double that amount of children. In-home family childcare, they really just need to have childcare experience. They could be a mom, they could be um, a Sunday school teacher, they could be you know, babysitting as a young child. They don't need to have a formal early childhood degree. Daycare centers, um, because they're caring for many more children and have many more responsibilities, are required to have a bachelor's in early childhood education or something similar, and or at least an associates with a plan to get their bachelor's eventually. But daycare centers are a little bit harder to open because there's, you know, separate building, separate overhead, heat, rent, all of that separate. And if you're in your home, you're paying for all those things anyway. So the, the overhead expenses are also less. Can you give me a kind of a ballpark idea of how many actual centers there are and how many in-home childcare uh, setups there are in Sullivan County? So we have 14 daycare centers, but that also includes three Head Starts, which are not quote unquote childcare. They're really more of a, a federally funded program for a specific group of children that need a Head Start because, you know, they, their parents don't all work. They, you know, there's other reasons why they're there and it's a, a federally funded program. So it's at no cost to the parent. So I think daycare, actually, there's more like 11 centers or 10 centers in Sullivan County. And some of them service pre-K, some of them service infants up to pre-K, some of them service infants to school-age childcare. Um, for family, we have 18 programs. And for group family, we have nine programs. And then there's five school-age programs, which those are the programs that are usually found in a school building that are run by a separate entity. For example, like the Boys and Girls Club would run a school-age program after school in Liberty or Monticello. Healthy Kids does the same thing, and that's a separate modality, and they're usually in a school building. You mentioned that we have lost four or five different child care centers in our community. What are the biggest reasons you're seeing for centers closing down? Uh, so a daycare center was really only one that closed, but there was issues prior to COVID that they had to address and COVID just made, made it insurmountable mm. to address those issues. We also lost, I think, four family childcare programs 
two of them were hoping to retire anyway. And they just kind of took the opportunity to say it's a good time to cut the cord, sell my house and go to live in Florida. <laughs> um, but we have actually had three or four new programs open, but they're all family programs. How were childcare programs impacted by the pandemic in our community? Did it affect the demand for childcare and, and inversely, did it affect the supply of childcare? Yeah. So it um, actually shifted what childcare looked like, mostly because um, our childcare programs were mostly caring for the kids that weren't in school while their parents were working. And, you know, the parents then relied on the schools or after school programs for the school age kids. But then when COVID hit, there were no schools. So, and a lot of parents were working from home. So the little ones stayed home with their parents while they were still working, which became its own challenge because uh, I don't know if you have little kids, but to try to work and have a conversation or do anything with a two-year-old that needs your attention is extremely stressful and difficult for both the baby and the parents. Um, so the little ones ended up staying home with the work from home parents and the older kids ended up going into the daycare programs. So our daycare providers and programs completely shifted their programmatic setups. They needed more technology. They needed to learn. It was a whole different shift. To care for older kids. Yes. And they also had to be able to set them up for online school. So, you know, we had one family program. I remember her saying, you know, I have seven kids and three of them have lunch at 11 and four of them have lunch at 12 and she's responsible for feeding them. So she's serving now basically two lunches. And trying to help three kids do, you know, if they have technology issues, it was just a whole different dynamic and not what they signed up for. Can you tell me a bit more about the resources that the Child Care Council offers for either, you know, folks who are interested in starting a child care center or a child care program at home? Um, and also the resources that the council provides maybe for centers that have been established for a while, but want to find, you know, more ways to enrich students, which it sounds like you probably had a lot to do with during the pandemic. I'll forget about pre-pandemic because life is just never going to be like that. <laughs> so during the pandemic, um, we're a lot funded by state contracts and or federal money that goes to the state that goes to the county, then goes to us or however it funnels down. And we have a very good partnership with our funders, which is mostly OCFS, the Office of Children and Family Services which is also the state agency that oversees childcare. So um, we work very closely with them when they had the, the care scholarship, which really was when the essential workers had to work. If they were not eligible for childcare subsidy, the cares um, paid for the childcare so they could work just to make it easier for them. So we processed that, those payments and or answered questions and or that kind of thing. We also dispersed a lot of PPE equipment to our child care providers. We, um, we facilitated a lot of funding that went from the state directly to providers for certain COVID-related issues, which might be maybe seven more iPads because the kids are doing technology at home or paying for their internet because they didn't usually need their internet necessarily because they didn't have to do online school. So those kinds of things we did during COVID. In general now, a little bit before, but mostly now we're getting back into a lot of what we do is going into the field, into child care programs for several different reasons. So we um, make sure they're meeting the regulatory requirements from state regulation, um, but we also go into the programs to help them uh, set up their 
um, play areas better or learn how to, especially family and group. If you have a two-year-old versus a five-year-old, the dynamics of what the kids need throughout the day are very different. So we help the providers kind of um, set up a routine to navigate around those kinds of things. We have a person that's a specialist in infant toddler care and behavior. We have an infant toddler mental health specialist, which really focuses on the adult that cares for the infants and toddlers. And we have a specialist that deals with pre-K. So, and a lot of the providers call us saying, this child is doing this behavior. I don't know what to do. So we go and we observe and we kind of see why the child is behaving that way. And we kind of like help them change their routine or change their room setup. Or sometimes it's a referral to special education or something like that. If, if we could, you know, wave a magic wand and make you in charge of childcare policy, maybe not just for New York state, but maybe for the whole country, as this is an issue that is impacting everywhere in the United States, what would be some uh, day one policies that you'd want to pass if you kind of had an unlimited budget to work with? An unlimited budget. So day one, I would, um, like I was saying earlier, you know, daycare centers are require a bachelor's in education. So you have a bachelor's in education, then you want to get your master's, you're going to go to a public school system because in childcare, they don't really make that much money. You know, they're lucky if they make 15 or $16 an hour with an education like that. And then, so then you hire people with less of an education. So you're paying them even less money. So to be able to give the um, daycare industry a living wage would be great. Um, and to get them to stay because they, you know, they use, a lot of people use daycare as a stepping stone into their public education career. Um, so I would definitely increase their pay rates based on whatever we want to base it on, whether it's education or experience or, you know, annual evaluations. And then the other thing I would do is as far as like the subsidy, you know, we limit whatever your income is. So if my income is $8 over that, it's like a, a eight or $12,000 loss in a benefit because I make $8 more than the girl standing next to me. So the, I know there has to be a limit somewhere, but even if we could like not be so rigid about that 200% or 300% or um, I would probably do that. And also there's a lot of rules. So you have to be working or you have to be doing this. And, you know, it's nice to say you have to be working, you get a half an hour to and from work. But we all know that mom wants to stop at the grocery store on the way home because it's 20 minutes versus 45 or an hour if I have my kids with me. And on the flip side, of course, you know, families sometimes take advantage too. So I would like to make it not as stringent. You know, I have a whole bunch of people reviewing cases so that it's not, you know, somebody having a personal opinion about how things should be. But I don't think it needs to be so stringent because every family has a different need, every single one. And you, Donna, personally have been with the council since 2000. Is that right? Yes. yes. So obviously you have dedicated most of your career to this area. What kind of keeps you going with this? And, and why is this something that you are passionate enough to really dedicate your life to? You know, childcare is a, is a huge issue, but it kind of focuses in on, it's a huge issue because you're dealing with families. Everybody's family has a different need. Everybody's work schedule is different, especially in our community. We have people that work overnight, nights, weekends, 24 hours, holidays. You know, that's what our jobs are around here. And I, I was one of those families. And now, you know, my children are grown and they are those families. And people call here and say, I don't know what to do. Or I'm getting the runaround. Like, I just like to kind of explain the system to people and help them the best that we can. 
because I, I know how hard it is, boy. <laughs> it's really hard. It's complicated. In case you didn't catch what Donna mentioned about how those child care subsidies work, I must say, they are baffling. And perhaps if you have kids, you are already well aware of this. But in order to receive the child care subsidy, you must be at work for quite literally every minute your child is at daycare. For example, if you are a bus driver and you run bus routes all morning and all afternoon, but you have a two-hour break between routes in the middle, you either need to pick up your child from daycare for the duration of those two hours and then bring them back to daycare again, or you will need to pay fully out of pocket for those two hours every day. This, of course, adds up enormously, particularly for families who are already struggling to make ends meet. And what's more is that if you lose your job and you are pounding the pavement every day to try to find another source of income to support your family, you also lose your childcare subsidy. And I want to touch more on all of this with my next guest today. I'm Nicole Nowick. I have a daycare center in Bethel, New York. Um, our max capacity is 26 kids, so we're kind of on the smaller side. Uh, we opened in September 2020, so kind of in the brute of the whole COVID situation. That's who I am, <laughs> mom of two. And uh, right now I'm a teacher in the preschool classroom while running the office and kind of doing it all thanks to staffing shortages and such. Did you decide to start your daycare center before COVID hit? Oh, yeah. Um, our licensing process was probably about a year and a half long. Um, yeah. Yeah. We wow. got stuck in like this horrible cycle. So you have to have all of your staff lined up in order to get a license. But you can't give them a start date because you don't have your license yet. So we got stuck in this terrible cycle. We couldn't get enough staff in to get the license. I couldn't give kids people start date because I had no idea and we had a mask waiting list and I'm calling people back saying I have no idea when we're opening and uh yeah it took a year and a half before we could finally get our license in hand and then when that happened we were supposed to open and the week that we were supposed to open COVID started being talked about and I was like you know what let's put a pin in this because you know something's about to go down and then all the schools shut down and we had to redo our entire game plan because now my kids were out of school. Uh, we had a baby room. We had to convert that to a school age classroom just to keep up with the need and what needed to, to happen and who we needed to serve. And because again, I have kids <laughs> and I had to work it around them too. So that put us on a delay. So I was like, you know, we'll, we'll follow with the schools and we'll open in September. And that's what we ended up doing. So you said your maximum capacity is 26 kids 
Mm-hmm. Have you ever had any difficulty hitting that capacity? Um, in the very beginning, when we first opened doors, it took us it took us a little while. Hmm. Um, I would say the first month we ended up. So we changed the baby room over to school age. Our classroom that was originally preschool, we ended up making another toddler classroom because that's where the need was. And after we did that, we filled our spots without an issue. But the first month, it took a lot of reworking. Um, And because we're regulated by the OCFS, we can't just change a classroom over. It's not that easy. We have to put in paperwork with them. They have to approve it. It's it's a whole process. I know you also mentioned that you've been having some serious staffing issues. Yeah. How did that come about? Is it just an issue of there's not enough people in this workforce? You know what? Staffing issues are across the country at this point. We have particular issues, I think, because we have to follow OCFF regulations. So we need a particular criteria educationally to be in classrooms. But the school systems, now they've got substitute teachers and they've kind of reduced their their credentials for that and their pay has gone up. And we just, we can't compete with that. We can only charge what we can for tuition that families can actually afford. And so we can only pay our staff what we can. So it's very hard to keep up with with what they can offer and what we can offer. Um, And like I said, it's short all the way around for for everybody. And our staff has to go through uh, five-hour training courses. They have to go through fingerprintings. They have to go through TV shots. So everybody's already put in a lot of time and money before they can even start. And not everybody, when you hit on this giant packet, you're like, okay, well, hopefully you can start in a week as long as your clearance comes back. You can't blame them for for moving on. Everybody's hiring. And if you can start Tuesday with somebody else making the same thing or more, and I'm telling you, well, I need these clearances to come back in three weeks before before I can put you in a classroom. It's hard. And daycare itself has a high turnover rate in general, um, because what you're looking for is somebody who's currently in school or with an associate's degree. And those people are generally working towards something better. You know, they're working towards getting into the school district. So they're only going to be with you right off the bat for, for only so long. Can you talk a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like in owning and operating this daycare center? Um, right now, it's a little chaotic because I'm also in a classroom. Um, things have settled down. I would say a little bit. Things are a little more normal since like the masks have come off. Um, parents are a little more calm and laid back or we're a little more calm and laid back with our, our protocols in that way. But oh, I don't even know because a regular day can change every day. It really just depends on what's being thrown at us, who's here and what classroom I'm in and, and what's going on. Or if I'm not in a classroom, I'm at my desk. But our parents come in, they drop off. Uh, we open at seven. So they're here between seven and nine or the majority of our kids come in at nine. And then from there, I'm currently in a classroom. So I'm in the classroom between nine to six o'clock. And then after that, I'm sitting at my desk doing paperwork and here talking to you. So it's uh, forever going, ever changing. Yeah, it's really hard to say because every day is kind of different. What's the classroom like that you're teaching in and, and what ages are are you working with? So right now I'm working in the preschool classroom and our kids in that class are from three. So I'm just turning four. I'm in the younger preschool classroom right now. 
Um, so we do our circle time in the morning. We do our art activities. Our program's a little more agriculturally based. We've got like 15 acres. So we try to spend a lot of time outside. We play with the animals. Um, we do our hiking trails now that it's finally warming up a little bit that we can get back out there, which is nice. Um, we have our academics fit in in between all of that, but really the age group that I'm working with right now, it's more about helping them learn to play with each other, to interact with each other. Those are really the premises we're setting to make sure if you go overly academic, in my opinion, if we go overly academic with the younger kids, they have a more resilience against learning versus making it fun. And the goal is really just to make it fun. In my head, as someone who is frankly not super familiar with how this system works, I always felt like there was some delineation between a preschool program versus mm -hmm. a daycare center. Is there a line between you know what those two terms mean or is it all kind of together? There is in so many people's minds, like the daycare and the daycare word and the daycare community has kind of gotten a little taboo because it it seems like it gives you that concept. You're just dropping off your kid. They're playing all day and that's it. And there are very many facilities that are actually like that. Most of us really do try to incorporate the education to make sure we're touching all those points and to focus on school readiness. So as a whole, and honestly, when I started the daycare, I didn't realize how taboo that word was. Hmm. Had I known that I probably wouldn't have used that word when I created Valley Daycare, I would have went with Valley Daycare Early Academy or Learning Center or, or something else, because there is that just that automatic association with, oh, I'm dropping my kid off and that's that. You know, they're going to play. It's going to be fine. I'll pick them up and it is what it is, you know, but it isn't. It's not what it is. Just in that there is learning activity going on. Absolutely. Yeah, no, we do have a curriculum. Um, we do have points that we are making sure that we are hitting, especially in like the older preschool classroom, they are focusing on school readiness. They are making sure that when they start preschool or they start kindergarten, they are, they are there. They know their letters. They know their numbers. They know their colors. Like all of those things are, have been touched upon. Um, as far as the infants and toddlers, we're making sure they're hitting their milestones. We're tracking all of that. Is there like a standardized curriculum that a lot of different daycare centers use either around the state or around the country? Or is this something that each one is kind of developing independently? So there's a million curriculums that you can purchase. Hmm. Um, sometimes daycare is like one brand over another. There's a common core curriculum. We have that. Um, our teachers can use that as a base and then really develop from there. I find that a lot of the staff that we get in, they like to build their own curriculum. So it's just the guidelines of this is what you need to to hit and this is like the points we have to make sure we're covering but how you go about it is up to you and a lot of them will build it on what their kids interests are and that's really the best way to go if all of your kids like dinosaurs and that's that's the theme for the next two weeks <laughs> into it because you have their attention on that you know whatever you had planned is well and great but if they're all roaring in the corner and you're trying to do farm animals it doesn't work you know you kind of have to flow with them on another side of things here do the direct costs that parents are paying for their kids to go to daycare, does that cover all the operating costs of your daycare facility? And, and you're shaking your head. Um, so if not, is there local, state, federal aid that closes the gap fully? So with center-based in particular, you're doing it out of love, 100%. And, and you know, what? it's one of those things when my husband and I, we made our, our plan in this net, 
we knew this was not a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> you're, you're hoping to cover overhead. That's not why you're in it. Um, ultimately, like group family daycares, they make out a little better than we do because the regulations are different. Their overhead is different because it's in their home. So their overhead is the same. You know what I mean? You're paying that mortgage regardless, whereas we're not. So yeah, there's, there's definitely better ways to go about things. There are, it seems like COVID has really brought about the like, oh my snap, like these people are important. We should help them. <laughs> Prior to COVID, there was very little grant funding um, and very little opportunity, especially for for-profit daycares. Um, non-for-profits, there's always a little more cushion for them. There's a little more options out there, but for-profits, there was, there was next to nothing. COVID has brought about some more. I wouldn't say, I don't think it's a forever plan. Like it's not going to continue to come. It's not going to continue to be an option. So we just have to work through it. You know, uh, we make our bills. <laughs> we get there, but uh, yeah, it's no get rich quick scheme. It's not, <laughs> it's not all that. And eventually the, the funding that is currently available is not going to be because we'll get looked over again like we have in the past. So that aid that your daycare is receiving is as a result of COVID or is there just generally a pool of aid out there for? No, it's a result of COVID. Absolutely. There, before that, there was really, there was nothing. It was what you were pulling in and that's really all you had. We've gotten the stabilization grant. There's the CARES grants that we've gone for, but, uh, but that's, you know, that's not going to be existent next year. So that's the reality of it. Before we ended our conversation, Nicole also wanted to talk about daycare subsidies and the difficulties that her business has had with the current subsidy system. So the state and the counties provide subsidy payments that childcare facilities can take. It's supposed to help the parents because they're going to pay the daycare and it's going to make it feasible for them to go to work. And that's the concept of it. The concept's there. But for us as providers, they're generally six weeks out on payments. So we end up in a very tight situation in those situations. And then the way that it is paid out is it changes for whether you're there for hours or the child's there for hours, the child's there for days, the child's there for the week. And if for whatever reason, mom's not working that day, she can't send her kid to daycare, which is fine. You know, she's not working. She can't send her kid. However, we generally charge weekly. Like I don't have an hourly rate at the daycare. That's not a thing. Mm. So the rate that the county will pay us drops down. And what ends up happening is ultimately we end up getting shorted. Otherwise we are sitting doing paperwork weekly, trying to figure out how much we're going to be shorted this week. So ask the parents pay the difference. So mom, I know you didn't work much this week, but I need more money because <laughs> you didn't work much this week. Um, so the whole subsidy system, I think really needs to be revamped. It needs to be relooked at. The market rates are below what is actually legitimately the market rates. And they just sent out the, the new market rate study. So hopefully that'll readjust things. But for parents that are they're in that situation, it's very hard for them to find care because most facilities don't want to deal with that if they don't have to, because at the end of the day, we're getting stuck with a bill. I mean, I've taken it and, and that's the way it goes, you know? Is so this subsidy also something that is as a result of COVID or is that... No. No, that's always been in place. Um, they did do a couple of like additional things during COVID where they were paying for those extra days where they never used to. But again, that's another thing that's it's going to run out. Like that's not something that's going to get continued. So unless they revamp the whole system, 
we're, we're starting from scratch there. And these parents are, are stuck in a scenario where they're not going to find the care that they need in order to continue to work and to get out of the situation that they're in in the first place. It's a, it's a vicious cycle and it kind of puts all of us in, in a tough spot. I've had families where they had an emergency situation. Like, I know I'm not going to get paid for this time. I understand that. But you have an emergency. I'm not going to tell you to come pick up your kid on the way to the hospital. You know, that that's not the way it's going to go. But you're also going to work like they work 20 hours a week, let's say. Now, if they the child's only in care for 19, we're getting dropped down from the day rate to the hourly rate. So instead of making, and I want to make sure I'm saying my numbers right. So the daily rate for a preschooler is $44. That's what they'll pay us for a daily rate. My daily rate is $60. That's what we charge families. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a huge difference. Mm. So now we can ask those families to make up that difference if we're allowed to do so. But if for whatever reason, they're not meeting those weekly hours, they automatically get dropped. We get dropped down to being paid that daily rate. So at the end of the week, I have to sit here and figure out how many hours this child was actually in care? So what is the county going to actually pay me six weeks from now so that I know how short I'm going to be? And am I going to ask the parent for that difference? And that $44 is just the, the standardized county daily rate for preschoolers right. in daycare? Yep. Wow. Yeah. It's tough. Most daycares in general, we take full-time kids. It's that full week. And I think even for families that aren't working that full week or aren't working, you know, every moment. My families that, that pay for that week, they're not working every moment that their child is here. That's not the reality. They have doctor's appointments. They have other things to get done. Um, so I would like to see the county pay the weekly rate as what it is and not be so deterrent on exactly what their work hours are because maybe they're picking up a second job. You know, you don't really know what someone's situation is. And it would give it more availability for us to actually take them. And, you know, when they sign up for subsidy, they have to already have a job. A lot of situations, mm -hmm. they ask for like two weeks pay stubs. But how is someone supposed to get those two weeks pay stubs if they couldn't before that send their kid to childcare in order to work those? You know, it's, it's a horrible, vicious cycle. It, does, it definitely needs to be revamped entirely because the system does not work. As we move further away from COVID, knock on wood, I think we are going to need to have serious conversations at every level of government about our childcare system. When pandemic aid dries up, it is going to be more important than ever that we have an effective childcare subsidy in place that doesn't end up putting our childcare facilities or the families that need them at risk particularly when it is more difficult than ever for childcare centers to compete for professional staff members to teach and care for our children. And as I said earlier, these are investments worth making. The payoff has the potential to be incredibly significant, both for our regional educational attainment and the viability of our workforce now and in the future. Thank you so much to Donna Willie from the Sullivan County Child Care Council and Nicole Newick from Valley Daycare for taking the time to chat this week. And as always, thank you for listening. 
I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week.